The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everybody. So um, we're back studying this book that we started a while back, The Wise Heart, one of Jack Kornfield's more recent books. And we're on Chapter 10 for any of you who would like to follow along with the group. And this chapter is on the storytelling mind. And one of the things that uh, probably you don't need to be a serious meditator to realize, and it's not an insignificant insight, is discovering how our mind is capable of creating stories that we literally were consumed by, we become absorbed in, and then fortunately at some point there's a recognition. It's almost like we're able to step out, pull out of it, pull out of the absorption, and there's a sense, oh my God, you know, that I was lost or caught. And while in that bubble or in that absorption, that the world of that story was our reality. It was as real as anything is real. And then when it gets popped for whatever reason, and there's a sense of having been lost, been caught up, all of a sudden it's not real. And we really see the similarity between our dreams, or when we're sleeping, and what we're doing pretty much all the time in terms of what we're concocting and then getting lost in, or we get lost in our constructions. So this is what we mean by the storytelling mind. It's the tendency of our mind to become absorbed in the content of our thoughts. Sometimes the thoughts are shared, meaning in a way together we're telling a story to each other. Like culturally, we have lots of stories that we somehow maintain together and we don't really question. That's the thing. When we're in a dream, asleep and in a dream, you know, you don't question the dream unless you're doing lucid dreaming or whatever that is. But otherwise, you don't question the dream until you're out of the dream. And then you realize, oh, it's just a dream. You know, I guess it wasn't true. I guess there aren't insects crawling all over my body or whatever your dream is. And sometimes, of course, the constructions we create are relatively pleasant or wholesome. Other times, these stories we're entertaining the mind are relatively, extremely unwholesome. So there's a whole range. Sometimes they're just neutral. But there's really two things going on. The relative toxicity of the story and the fact that we're lost in it. So we could have a really wholesome story. I love all beings. You know, That's a relatively wholesome story. But if we're lost in it, if we're caught up in that, that's not wholesome, even though the content of the story might be wholesome, might be really pleasant to be lost in that kind of a story. I love all beings. Or, uh, you know, we're all here working together. Now, the important thing about this investigation, this beginning 
to reflect on the tendency of the mind to construct stories and then the habit of the mind to get lost in them, we have to be really careful not to assume that being averse to thinking is somehow the solution or appropriate. We want to understand the thinking process. We want to understand what it does, what it is, and the tendency we have to get lost in it, to become absorbed in it, and what are the consequences of that. But it's not about controlling, because that would be just more of the same. Oh, I shouldn't be thinking thoughts, or I shouldn't be having this thought, which is another thought, another construction that we can get lost in. You know, I shouldn't be thinking. I'm a Buddhist, or something like that. In this chapter, Jack Kornfield has a, a line. He says, you know, just like salivatory, or salivatory glands secrete saliva, the mind secretes thoughts. And this is really, like, just that appreciation. But that's what the mind does. It thinks. I mean, it's one of the things the mind does. So it's not like uh, it's a mistake. And then the more we reflect and, and practice being aware of what the mind is doing, the more it makes so much sense. Whatever the particular thought is, we really understand like how it is that the thoughts are rising, all the, the various contributing factors that make it so that this thought is arising in the mind like this at this time. And we never, it never occurs to us when the mind is really clear, kind of grounded in the way it is, it never would occur to the mind that somehow this is the wrong thought. It may be unskillful, the thought that's arising, but it's natural, you know. So like today, I've had many so-called unskillful thoughts, thoughts that aren't, you know, thoughts that I would never, for example, want to act out, want to sort of take personally and act out. But my mind very rarely now, uh, it doesn't consider any particular thought to be bad because I've been watching my thoughts for a while. So when thoughts come, it makes, it makes so much sense that this thought is arising. Not that I am doing it or that I would prefer this thought to some other kind of thought. Just like, you know, when we get a hot, humid day, if we're being wise, we don't complain because we realize, you know, sometimes it's hot and humid, sometimes it's cool and dry, sometimes it's stormy, sometimes it's this way, sometimes that way. But we understand that the weather is arising due to all these different vast number of natural causes and conditions. And it doesn't really make any sense to somehow want it to be another way. And it doesn't deny, again, that we have preferences, you know, that it's more pleasant when it's cool and dry, for me at least, and uh, less pleasant when it's really hot and humid. But my mind doesn't waste its time sort of complaining or uh, uh, sort of somehow feeling like it's a failure when it's hot and humid. We don't take it personally. And we can have that same relationship to our thoughts the more we understand what they are and how they come and how they go. It would probably be really useful if we had enough time, and we'll have a little time at the end of the talk for people to share, but can you imagine if we took as much time 
uh, as it would as was needed to have everybody in the room tell their story of when they got lost in some thought. And Jack Hartfield has a, a couple of nice examples in this chapter, like one when his early years uh, in practice, he was a monk in Thailand. I think he was a monk for like five years, a Buddhist monk. And, and early on as a monk, he was practicing mostly alone. And he started to feel, you know, the mind gets really sensitive and really energized. That generally happens when you're doing intensive retreat practice where you're sort of away from a lot of worldly influences like media and a lot of sort of conversations and your life is really simple and you're doing a lot of sitting and walking practice so the mind starts to get really energized, concentrated and energized and we started noticing all kinds of things about the body that we're mostly oblivious to and he started to notice that certain parts of the body he couldn't feel. And I forget why it was, but he knew something about leprosy from some previous experience or whatever. And the thought arose in his mind, oh my God, I have leprosy. And instead of, you know, that just being a random thought, the mind, you know, wasn't so maybe mindful in that moment. And he got identified with that thought. And then that, of course, you know, when we get identified even for an instant, with the thought, I have leprosy, we're going to feel compelled to have another thought about that, you know? And then that thought we get identified with, and before we know it, it's like a snowball effect rolling down a mountain. Each time we have a thought about it, there's an emotional, energetic reaction. That energetic reaction compels us to have another thought about it, and on and on like that, until it became sort of, sort of, uh, this huge thing in his mind. He said for, I think, three days. At some point, he went to see one of the senior monks around. He, he was too embarrassed to tell them exactly what was going on, that he was obsessing about having leprosy. But he did you know, have enough wherewithal to ask about like, what he was feeling in his body. And the monk laughed and laughed and laughed, even though he didn't say anything kind of silly. And he just said, yeah, that's how it is. You know, You get concentrated in the body. You start to feel different things in the body. And it can feel disconcerting or can feel strange because you're not used to feeling the body in that particular way. And that, you know, just sort of popped that whole idea that he has leprosy. But of course, when you're in the middle of it, you might really feel that way. And we even have a term for it in this particular tradition. We call it yogi mind. Generally, in the Buddhist tradition, people who are doing intensive practice are called yogis. And then yogi mind refers to the situation. Whether we're on retreat or not, it doesn't matter. But when we notice how the mind can construct a reality and then get lost in it, lost in it in the sense that we don't realize we're lost in our thoughts about things. We actually think it's this way. And that's sort of the definition is that you know, like all the windows and doors are shut so there's no way to recognize that we're in a room that we've decorated and it's having a particular effect. There's no way to recognize that this is just a room that we've constructed, that there's a whole many other rooms out there, a whole universe out there. We don't realize it. In fact, it's just a good assumption to make that even right now, for example, all of us, to some degree, 
are lost in our constructions, the, the thoughts. You know, the biggest one, the most pervasive and subtle one, is the thought that I exist as some separate, permanent entity. This is definitely the way the Buddha taught, that that's a construction of the mind. And it never even occurs to us to question that assumption because the room we've constructed for ourselves confirms that experience all the time. For example, we see something we, we really like, and then we have kind of an ache in our heart. Oh, boy, that would be so nice to have. Well, how would that happen if there wasn't a me here? You know, who is it that wants it? So, so many of our experiences of attraction and aversion confirm the sense of mark, a, set, a permanent entity here and now. So this is so many, like some of us may have a story about being bad, no good, never been successful, never will be successful, or we may feel like the master of the universe, always have been successful, always will be successful, I'm attractive, I'm not attractive, people like me, people don't like me, I'm old, I'm young, I'm male, I'm female, I'm ugly, I'm attractive. I'm smart, I'm stupid, the world's going to hell, it's, a, you know, it's the dawning of a new beautiful age. You know, we have all kinds of stories that we basically, at least in moments, really believe in. You know, a lot of us, it seems these days, are pretty down on politics. You know, we can just feel like, you know, this is the dark age. <laughs> but. Compared to what? <laughs> you know, if you study a little history, it wasn't that long ago when Joe McCarthy was doing his thing. You know, we think it was, when, like, when was the good time? <laughs> so, but, but doesn't that seem compelling sometimes? Like, this is really the dark age. You know, things are so much worse now. We're really screwed. And that may be true. I'm not saying that that's not true. But it's like, it's so these stories we tell ourselves can be so compelling. We can be having a nice set, the mind is really bright, the energy is sort of, body is full of the, the bright, blissful energy, and there's just a sense of things coming and going, and we can just feel like, this is it, you know? I understand, life isn't a problem, you know? And then, 10 minutes later after the set, somebody can cut us off in traffic, or you know, our tomato we've been waiting to eat goes bad, or something trivial like that, and it's like we're angry and upset. Joseph Goldstein, and actually several people tell the basically the same story of you know in the middle of having a great set, just feeling really free and easy and light, and then the meal bell bell rings. You know, it's time for the next meal. In this case, the particular story I'm remembering, it wasn't even a full meal. It was the evening meal. And often on Buddhist retreats, the evening meal is very frugal. <laughs> In this case, he said it was little bananas, you know, the Asian-style bananas, not the big sort of uh, species of bananas that we eat, but the sort of the smaller version, bananas and yogurt or something like that. You know, so the evening meal bell rings, and it's like, Forget this meditation. <laughs> I'm going for the bananas. And, you know, just kind of catching himself in line 
even though moments before he was thinking, you know, this is it. And so there are so many of these uh, stories that have been practiced over and over again. They're like a gaping holes we can fall back into. Like some of us, the shame hole. It's just a big gaping hole, easy to fall into, where we just feel no good. Or whatever, the particular hole we can fall into. And it has a kind of integrity when we're in that hole, when we're lost in those thoughts. Because the way we're seeing the world is uh, basically coloring the, our experience so that it confirms that reality. So most, for those of you who are reading this book, uh, in each chapter, Jack Hornfield distills one of the principles of Buddhist psychology. So he's taken the different teachings of the Buddha and come up with a number of principles. So the tenth principle from chapter 10 is, let's see, where is it? Thoughts are often one-sided and untrue. Learn to be mindful of thoughts instead of being lost in them. So how do we become mindful of thoughts? Well, one of the most important things I mentioned already, but I'll just say again because it's so important, is we have to be careful because the tendency will be to make thoughts the enemy. And the real, this is a, this is a difficult insight to get. I mean, probably all of us have had glimpses of this insight but this insight has to be opened up over my senses over a long period of time, which is in order to transform how we are in the world, in order to grow wisdom, we have to let things move. We have to let things happen. If we, if we understand our spiritual life as a way of avoiding messes or avoiding being stupid or avoiding making mistakes, that's not quite right. I mean, in, a, in an ultimate sense, it's right. We'd like to be living our life in a way where we're not making mistakes that harm ourselves or others. But to get there, we basically are relying on one thing, which is that continuity of awareness. We're not relying on controlling, like stopping ourselves from being bad or stopping ourselves from making mistakes. We're relying on awareness. Now, sometimes awareness is there, there's a knowing, and with that knowing there's some wisdom, and we won't do something that we're inclined to do. This has happened to all of us thousands and thousands of times, right? I mean, just imagine if we hadn't ever restrained ourselves, ever, from our different compulsions. We'd all be in jail or somewhere, dead probably. But so we already have this capacity to be aware, we already have some wisdom operating but the idea is like when a thought is arising, we don't want to squash it. That's not mindfulness practice. Oh, don't think that, Mark. Don't go there. Mindfulness practice is that simple, clear, present moment awareness, the continuity of that simple, clear, present moment awareness. So we actually see the despicable thought arise, and we see it cease. We feel this desire arise, and we see it cease. We see this beautiful quality of love or kindness arise and we see it cease. We're seeing everything come and go. Mindfulness allows everything to come and go. And because it's coming and going, we really begin to understand it. If we're always squashing the bad stuff, 
the shame, the judgment, the lust, the judgment, the, critis- the critical mind, the angry mind. Like, I can't be angry. I'm, if, we're, if we're squashing it every time, we don't get the deeper insight. What's the deeper insight that we see? That everything comes and goes. Like, think about how many times we've been rageful, we've been lustful, we've been, um, you know, every afflictive emotion under the sun. Those emotions come and go. If we keep seeing that, it changes our relationship to afflictive emotions, to these, this, the thinking process generally, where we're not taking it personally. It's harder and harder to get lost in stories if we understand what they are. What causes the, the sort of primary cause for getting lost in our stories is that we don't understand what they are. We think they're me. But when we see hundreds of thousands of times thoughts, whether they're a wholesome thought or an unwholesome thought, arise and cease, we stop taking our thinking so personally. It's just stuff coming and going. Like once Joseph Goldstein said, just like somebody's left the radio on. You know, and it's just playing there. And we don't have to take it so personally. We don't want to space out. We really want to watch it because we want to keep getting that sense that, oh, now the mind is creating this. It's like we're sitting here and probably for most of us at some point in the last hour or whatever, we've had the thought, oh, when I go home, it will be like this, right? And that's a, and you know, we can like, really live inside that bubble for a few seconds. It will really, there is that future that I will have soon. Or, you know, maybe during the sit when your mind was quiet, you remembered something you said that, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. You know, and then we get, we're in that bubble for a moment. But we can also have the recognition, see, a lot of thoughts, or a certain number of them at least, they have important information. So that's is why we, there's no reason to somehow try to eliminate all the thoughts from the mind. We just don't want to misunderstand what they are. Some thoughts come with important information. Some thoughts are sort of just empty fluff, kind of neutral. And some thoughts are really destructive, really harmful if we get identified with them. You know, the kind of uh, view or world that they're painting is really a dark, constricted place and uh, doesn't align with the way it actually is. Jack Cornfield quotes Carlos, one of Carlos Castaneda's books. Uh, if you don't know him, he wrote several books. He was an anthropologist and evidently met this really amazing teacher named Don Juan, somewhere in Mexico, a shaman who seemed to be writing his book, seemed to have a lot of wisdom. So this is Don Juan, Carlos's teacher, talking to him. He says, you talk to yourself too much. You're not unique in that. Every one of us does. We maintain our world with our inner dialogue. A man or woman of knowledge is aware of that world, aware that the world will change completely as soon as they stop talking to themselves. 
And then Jack Kornfield goes on. He says, when mindfulness is focused on the process of thinking, an entirely different dimension of existence becomes visible. We see how our ridiculous, repetitive thought stream continually constructs our limited sense of self with judgments, defenses, ambitions, and compensations. When they are unexamined, we believe them. But if someone were to follow us closely by and repeatedly whisper to us our own thoughts, we would quickly become bored with their words. If they continued, we would be dismayed by their constant criticisms and fears, then angry that they wouldn't ever shut up. Finally, we might even simply conclude that they were crazy. Yet we do this to ourselves. I sometimes say, maybe some of you have heard me that, I mean, imagine if we could somehow record that inner dialogue, you know, and then it's like randomly somebody's would be projected and we'd all sit back and we just, hopefully we could somehow concentrate it so it wouldn't take so long and basically watch or hear what went on in our minds. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? And the question is like, why does this continue to happen? And I think it's like Jack Kornfeld suggests, we, it's unexamined. And it's unexamined because when we take something very personally, it doesn't really make sense to examine something that seems really personal. Because, you know, because it's coming from me, I shouldn't have to look at it, right? It doesn't make sense. So this practice is disconcerting in that sense. But we don't really make sort of this direct assault on the mind. What we do, as you know, most of you know quite well, is we emphasize a stability of awareness. Right? We use the body, like just the experience of the body sitting, or the breath moving in the body, or just the awareness of hearing. We tend to use relatively neutral objects and learn how to have that continuity of awareness, that stability of mind, that's basic contentment, basic sense of wholeness, simple, clear presence. Because that's a really good place then to allow the mind to do its thing. Because if we just right now, if I say, okay, watch your mind, whether we want to or not, the habit, the kind of conditioning of the mind is such that we're going to try to control the thinking process. It's really hard to watch the mind directly unless the mind is very relaxed and content. Content being aware of the present moment. And then there with the awareness of the breath, awareness of the body, awareness of hearing, or just the awareness of contentment once there's enough momentum in the practice. So we're just aware of the wholeness or the fullness of the present moment. And then in that relatively simple place, the thinking process is going to do its thing. It's going to just keep doing what it does. Thinking is what the mind does. And we let it do what it does. But now there's this reflective part of the mind knowing that the mind is doing what it does. And sometimes it's doing really stupid things, and sometimes it's doing really beautiful things, and sometimes just sort of neutral fluff. 
but it's just moving. Just like the sensations in the body, you notice that they're always alive with movement. Have you ever felt your body, when your mind is clear, not moving? Sensations just move. That's what sensations do. Sounds just move. That's all sounds can do. There's never like a static experience of sound or sight. Like even now, most of our eyes are open. You know, when we're looking, it's like the visual field is just alive with change. So it's the same with the mind. The mind never stands still. Nothing stands still. So in that place of relative calm, spaciousness, contentment, we watch the mind move, we let the mind move, and we're practicing not being confused by the movement of thought and images. Some people think more in images, some more in thoughts or language. But this is not easy. So what remember, what we're doing mostly initially is learning just how to let the sensations of the breath move, or the sensations of the body move, or the experience of hearing move. Learning how to be stable, comfortable, relaxed with the present. And then can help it then uh, being, becoming a student of the mind, thinking mind. One of the reasons this practice is a bit can be a bit disconcerting is as we open to that movement, it begins to undermine some deeply held stories, I guess we'd say, or thoughts. You know, like I mentioned earlier, that the sense of being uh, having a, a sense of self, a permanent entity here to whom life is happening or the person who is engaged in life. And one of the real foundations of that sense of self is this sense of ownership of our thoughts. But as we begin to be able to see thoughts as a more, more of a movement of nature, you know, now the thoughts are this way, now the thoughts are that way, and having the same kind of ebb and flow that weather has, sometimes they're stormy, sometimes things are very clear, sometimes dark, damp, dank, you know. So we see that, and we see it has sort of this independent movement thinking, like, I didn't do that. I'm not thinking this. This is a powerful insight and a disconcerting insight. Sometimes it's called in the tradition like a waterfall, seeing the waterfall of the mind or seeing the monkey mind. And it's disconcerting because we're starting slowly, little by little, to wake up to the truth that thinking is not self. Thinking is a natural process arising, arising due to certain causes and conditions. For example, like think about our dreaming at night. Where do those dreams come from? Well, you know, there's sort of many different influences. Like, where's the past? Now, neuroscientists and, and meditators and you know, people in the Buddhist tradition have stated for a long time that the mind is quite powerful and every single experience, you know, we have this mind, this particular mind since this birth has been sensitive from day one. And now we're, of course, I can't remember when I was two and I can't remember even a lot of things when I was ten. Right? We forget a lot. 
but somehow that are those memories actually gone? So somewhere, you know, I'm not sure how it works. Maybe some of the scientists can, you know, give us a metaphor for how it all works. But the point is, all of that information is available. The entire past is available. The entire present is available. So whether we're asleep concocting a dream or awake concocting our sense of what's going on now, the uh, mind can basically pull from that great pool. You know, what's happening now, what's being seen or heard or thought or touched or smelled or tasted now, as well as everything that's been seen or tasted or smelled or touched or thought in the past. All of that can be used. This is why we can be, in moments at least, very creative. You know, people like artists and writers and you know all kinds of different people have understood that if you still the mind, you get relaxed, you can put amazing things together. Like Albert Einstein's story is so interesting how, you know, getting on the bus, I think it was, you know, of course he'd been thinking about physics for a long time and applying himself, but there in a relaxed moment without trying to figure out the sort of underlying principles of the universe, I think, as I've heard the story written, you know, he just understood, oh yeah, E equals MC squared. You know, it just sort of came to him, that understanding. Maybe that something like this has happened to you. Maybe not about physics, but about like, <laughs> should I get married or not? Or, you know, should I take that job? Or should I have a hot dog or a hamburger? Or, <laughs> you know, where we just, it just sort of becomes clear, oh, this is, this is how it is. And it, it, because when the mind is quiet or not kind of fixed, when the mind is relaxed, it's like it has a much deeper, broader pool to draw from, to sort of create whatever the mind is going to create. That's what the mind does. One of the lines in this chapter, Jack Hornfield quotes something that has been around a lot. Probably you've heard this quote before. I think the woman, or I'm not sure the person was uh, Rukeyser, something like that, is the poet. But it's the quote is something like, uh, the world isn't made up of atoms, it's made up of stories. We are our existence, what we know as our existence, our reality, is some intermixing of stories. Some we tell together, some it's a very personal story that I only tell to myself. And again, it's not neither good nor bad. From the point of view of this practice, we just want to understand how it is. Understanding how it is, how these stories arise, so we're getting that continuity of awareness. So we're actually seeing the formation and dissolution, because in order to have a different story, like before you came to Common Ground, you might have had a particular story. Then when you're at Common Ground and seeing the people and doing the practice, well, it's different conditions. So you're probably constructing a different kind of story. Like, oh, I should do this more often. This is so good for me, or whatever. So, but we want to see that this one story has to fall apart, disappear, in order for another reality to arise. And like I said earlier, the more we see the arising, the arising and the dissolution of our views, our stories, our conceptions, 
the more we don't take them so personally. So we might, in a sense, like this is sort of in Buddhist terms, we might be born into a really heavy story, you know, I'm no good, or really depressed story, like feeling helpless, or really energized, alive story, like, oh yeah, I can do that. But nothing freaks us out, and we and the good stuff we don't like think that somehow, okay, I've got my ticket, I'll just stay in this story for the rest of my life. We don't do that because we know that however beautiful our mind state is in a particular time, it's going to fall apart eventually. Or however heavy our mind state is, it's also going to fall apart. I mean, just think about how many glorious mind states we've had and how many really heavy states of mind we've been lost in over the years. I mean, it's an amazing number, even today, how many different realities we inhabited due to our different mind states. Really happy, really sad, really bored, really excited, really neutral, really calm, really agitated. So what's the future going to be? It's just more of the same. And being like developing this practice doesn't mean we don't have different mind states. It means we understand what a mind state is. See, it's very different to feel like, let's say, helplessness is triggered. You go home, you know, whatever it is, you're trying to fix your computer, you know, something you can't figure out on your computer, and I'll, and, and I'll send that, that old story that you practiced ever since you were three years old and didn't know how to use a little toilet or whatever, you know. You know, oh, I can't do it, I've never been able to do anything, you know, or whatever. And you just feel like a failure. But if there's some mindfulness that this is just a story, and not only just a story, but an ancient story that's been told, has arisen, and has fallen apart so many times, well, it's not so afflictive when we understand it's just a story. But if we don't understand it's a story, then to some degree, maybe completely, the mind is going to see for that period of time, this is who I am, this is the truth. And when we really think we're that terrible person, then, I know it sounds strange to say this, we create the suffering to match the story we're believing. This is what we do. It's really insane, but this is what we do over and over and over again. We construct, we create exalted states to match our exalted views. And as meditators and people on this path of awakening, this is a real danger. Because as, as we begin to work with the mind, we can find really beautiful states of mind. And we can think, this is the answer. Like we basically are investing in this particular kind of construction. I just want to abide in these very beautiful states. How do I keep constructing these very beautiful states? Not understanding how much stress is involved in needing really exalted, beautiful states of mind. So it's not just constru constructing the afflictive states of mind that we have to go beyond, but even constructing the really beautiful, exalted states of mind. We want to understand that whatever the mind constructs is just a construction. And we don't want to be dependent on any construction. We want to just let them come and go. This is real wisdom. This is the wisdom the Buddha pointed to. And in a way, it's distinct from uh, some other religious spiritual traditions in that it's not emphasizing 
exalted states of mind, like exalted states of compassion and kindness. As wholesome as that is, it's not, nobody would say that that's not a wholesome thing. But to be dependent on being in that sort of uh, loving state means that we're afraid of our anger being triggered, doesn't it? We can't be identified, attached with the exalted state of universal compassion without being afraid of falling into a state where we're angry or needy or judgmental, right? So that fear, that like uh, dependence on that exalted state is suffering. So when we have the good fortune to move and know a really beautiful state of mind, we just want to know there's a beautiful state of mind and it's like this. It's like this. It's just a beautiful state of mind being known. And when there's a really heavy negative state of mind arising, then there's just that simple, powerful wisdom that knows, oh, there's this very heavy, afflictive state of mind being known. And like everything, it will arise, it will blossom, it will be here, and it will resolve itself, fall apart, and then there will be something else. And then we begin, if if we do that a lot, if we really get to this place in practice where we can see mind states, stories come and go, then we'll begin to awaken to something, a kind of wisdom, an empty wisdom. Empty because it's not dependent on any particular story that can just let things be. So in Buddhism we have terms like the unconditioned or emptiness to sort of point to it because it's not a construction that we're looking for. It's a wisdom that doesn't get attached to constructions. That's really our refuge, the non-attachment to whatever the mind constructs. But see, it's not a disengagement from life or from what the mind constructs because that would be aversion to the constructions. We're still taking it personally if we feel we have to retreat from our depression or joy. So we're not retreating from negative and positive states of mind. The awareness is, in a sense, right there. You know, Where else would the awareness be? It's right there in the experience knowing the depression, knowing the happiness. But it's there with wisdom that understands it's just a thought. It's just a story. It's just a mind state. All mind states come and go. And so the mind drops its habit of getting lost, of getting fixed or identified. So we'll talk about this one more time, but I want to save a little time to hear from people. We've got 10 or 15 minutes. If there are some thoughts from your own practice you'd like to share with the group or any questions about the talk tonight, uh, please say your name. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Jerry. Yeah, because, like I said, some thoughts, like, um, some thoughts are very useful. And the question is, is there a way to allow, this is why, what, what I was saying earlier, you know, how initially we, 
the habit of the mind. It's actually not easy to get beyond this point where the mindfulness, we think we're being mindful, but we're really just like slapping down thoughts. You know, oh, I'm not, you know, because either because we want to protect the quiet, because we think that's the ticket, or because we're afraid of the thought, you know. But as the mindfulness has more stability, we're more willing to let the thoughts continue, and they'll cease on their own. And if a thought is productive, <coughs> it won't cease until it's done its work, you know, whatever it is. So if we're solving a problem that actually needs to be solved, for example, then the thinking will do its job, and then it will cease when the job is done. And this is like, so I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but you know, thoughts make good servants but terrible masters because thoughts don't really have any of their own wisdom. They're just a particular pattern. So when, you know, when we pick up a particular problem that needs to be solved, you know, once we set the mind to work, there's nothing in that sort of work that's going to question whether this task really needs to be done. It really needs to that decision really needs to be done from a different perspective, a more global perspective that understands that there are many thoughts that could be thought, there are many things that could be paid attention to. The fact that the mind is sort of focusing here is only appropriate if there's some function to this. And if it's not, if it's just tightening the mind, constricting the mind, then the mind will abandon it. It will not sort of, the sort of What's feeding that will fall away, and there won't be supporting causes for that thinking to continue. But when it's productive, when it's actually skillful to think, then that's fine. But in either case, we want to maintain a sense. It's not easy, but some sense that this is being done, this is happening, this is being known. You know, the mind is thinking about how to solve this problem, and it's like this. Because we want to monitor, is greed or aversion creeping in? or not because it doesn't help you know it, it just like if we start feeling really dependent a sense of dependence on this getting solved it makes it harder like if Albert Einstein as he was walking on the bus had this neurotic attachment like I really want to figure this out so I can submit the journal article and you know get recognized before somebody else figures it out or something like that you can imagine how that subtle tension wouldn't have allowed his mind to be relaxed enough in order to access all of what he needed to access to kind of come up with that creative idea. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, maybe. An elephant in the dark? Yes. So, basically, they, they take a bunch of people to India to show them that the elephant, the elephant in the so by the time they get there, it's dark. Uh-huh. So they bring them and, you know, they touch the elephant. Oh, yeah, Somebody I know. Somebody touches the leg or says the elephant is a pole. Somebody touches the back of the elephant says that the elephant is a bear. Somebody touches the nose says the elephant is a cute. Uh-huh. And then, so there are different you know, thoughts of you know, the elephant. And then when we said that if they had a candle, somebody's light of the candle, they would all you know, have to go for the elephant. 
Yeah. And this is this is true for us too. You know, because our mind has this capacity to project its reality, and in a way, a sense of certainty too, because of the identification. It's like we've gotten seduced by that feeling of certainty without really understanding the cost. Because, you know, this is the thing about concepts. It's the one thing in the field of experience that has a sense of permanency. When a concept comes up like egg, egg is a concept. Egg, the concept, is not an egg, the thing, right? So egg as a concept, there's some permanency to that concept the thought egg, the image egg. But see, this world we actually live in, there's nothing that's constant. But the more we are in the world of concepts, we, become, we start becoming dependent on the permanency that concepts seem to give things, give our you know, experience. And we become unfamiliar with actually being alive in the non-conceptual world. So we create up this, create this neurotic tension, like we actually become more and more afraid of things as they actually are, and more and more dependent on our mental projections through the use of concept. And so the image of like bringing a candle is like bringing wisdom and awareness, you know. And this is what I said earlier, it's disconcerting. That's generally why it's a gradual process, because although it really leads to freedom, it can be a rocky path to freedom because there's real grieving. We are grieving something. It's delusion we're grieving, but that's as much something as anything is something. You know, the world we've created, projected through concepts and thoughts is as real as anything is real and the mind is fixed on it. And if we're really going to let that go, our thoughts about who we are and what's happening and who you are, and open to a more fluid we really have to let go of that. And just like we feel lost when we lose someone who we love or whatever, say goodbye to a place, this is even more poignant, the sense of loss. I meet with a lot of people about the practice, and this comes up regularly, just, and people don't understand it often because it surprises, because on one level they feel like the practice is, is working, like so much is working better in their lives, they just have more clarity and more calm. But then they start to tap into kind of very deep uh, feeling of grief or sadness. And it surprises them, like, why would I be feeling this kind of grief or sadness, this sort of deep, poignant emotion? But it, it's because something deep and radical is shifting, and the heart and mind is letting go of something that it thought it knew in order to open to something that it doesn't know. And it's, uh, on the one hand, scary, and on the other hand, a lot of grieving, appropriate grieving. So we let go that the world is, you know, like the front of the elephant, or the back of the elephant, or the, the leg of the elephant. And we see the whole thing. Yeah, thanks, David. A couple other thoughts? Time for a couple of thoughts? Yeah. Remind me of your name. Ian? Um, I feel like... Mm-hmm. 
And I find myself thinking of everything. It's just a story, and I can't read them anything. Yeah. So there, there's a the, when you develop your practice, the, the, you know this is not just in the Buddhist tradition. They always talk about how the spiritual life gets really narrow, the path gets really narrow, because it's really easy as we develop the practice. It's easy to fall into nihilism, nothing matters, and because the mind is getting developed, you know the clarity of the mind is getting developed. It's easy also to fall into like I talked about before, sort of exalted states, you know, like really getting, like thinking the practice is about finding and hanging out in beautiful states of mind, subtle but beautiful states of mind. And this is the edge. These are the two edges. So when you fall into nihilism, like nothing matters, the key for both states is you have to keep practicing. And the problem is when you tend to fall into one end or the other, by definition, you think you should stop practicing. So, for example, when we get into a nice state of mind, it just seems so appropriate. Like, I don't need to practice being mindful when I'm in this beautiful state. Or when we get into doubt or nihilism, it seems so appropriate, like, because it's so compelling, you know? Like, what you said intellectually makes a lot of sense, right? So, but are you mindful of all that? Are you aware that's just a thought? You know, the doubt, that's just a thought, too. You know, nothing matters. That's just a thought, too. See, that's the forgetting to practice piece. So if you're going to continue with this, you've got to really stick to the practice. It's our only refuge. We have one refuge. There's one, ultimately, one instruction. Continue to be aware, right? Continuity of awareness. This is just something being known. So whatever nihilistic conception your mind creates, recognize, oh, it's just something being known. It just deflates it immediately. If you really see it as just an object being known, the whole, because it can be so compelling, that nihilistic view. Because in an intellectual way, it seems to make a lot of sense. But it only makes sense from a self point of view. And so if you look at, at it and just see it's just a thought, you know, nothing matters. That's just a thought. It just takes the wind out of it. It's got to be quick, though. We're almost out of time. The nice thing, I mean, the Buddha set this up so that the, the thing we do, in a sense, get attached to, like you, said, you mentioned, you know, awareness above all. So in a sense, we're, we are saying that, you know, we're really taking refuge in awareness. But any particular stance will get exposed. 
So it, it's sort of a weeding out process. So we even build centers to awareness. You know, the center is devoted to mindfulness practice. So it can feel like a substantial thing we're sort of holding on to. But this substantial thing we're holding on to will undermine anything eventually. We'll see it with mindfulness, and we'll see it's just something being known. So it, it keeps peeling things away until the heart rests in freedom, in the full release, the complete release. We have to leave it here. Of course, we go on. But we'll come back to this topic next Sunday. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Time for a couple breaths together. Letting things become very simple, immediate. And learning to trust the simplicity. And coming back to our simple, deepest aspiration to align the mind and heart with the truth of things be a cause for peace and freedom from suffering for ourselves and for all beings. So may this be so. Thanks everyone for coming.